Baptisms are next week. We want everybody to come to baptisms. We want it to be a big party where we all get together. Uh, Element is going to provide tri-tip, bread, beans, and drinks. Okay? Yeah, yeah. So, you want a free meal? Show up. All right? So, all right. I'll take that, too. So, 115 next week, there is directions on all the communion tables throughout the room. You can take one of those so you know where you're supposed to go. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll get everybody to be 1, 115. We'll start baptisms after that. We'll all eat. We'll all be a great thing. Now, you have a part to do in this. If you come, I need you to bring something. Since we're providing all this, if your last name is A through L. L. Okay. A through L. If your last name is A through L, you're going to bring a dessert of some sort. And not just like, you know, a Twinkie for yourself. You're going to bring stuff for other people to share as well, because they make Twinkies again. Uh, So you're going to bring like a a lot of stuff to share with people. If your last name is M through Z, you're going to bring a side dish or a salad. And if you're like, oh, I don't know what to make for a side dish. Cookies are a side dish, in my opinion. (laughs) Feel free. I did this before, and a lot of people just brought cookies, and then I got yelled at. So, uh, A through M, bring a side dish. Although, it is never a bad day if there are cookies left over. Just saying. All right. So, that, 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 that's your job. Next week, put it on your calendar. If you haven't written anything on your calendar and you're in town for Labor Day weekend, I know people are in and out a lot on Labor Day weekend, but put it on your calendar if you're here. Please come and show up. And if you show up and it's awkward and weird and you don't want to stay, well, you can leave because you drove there anyway. All right? So, just come and check it out. We just, it's, it is a great time where we gather with God's people to baptize people together so we can celebrate. It's one of the original rites that kind of kept the church together, and so we want to do it as a gigantic party. So grab those, and I'll meet you there. Hey, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have it. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They are half sheets. They look like this. And on one side, you get the verses we're going through, some places to take notes or doodle if I get boring. And over here, you get some, a little reflection on what we talk about, some questions to reflect on what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More, and then you events in version. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, and it says, Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who trust you and understand what that means in the midst of all the metaphors we've looked at in the last couple weeks and how you talk about salvation. And I ask that we would see that and trust you and live in the grace that you provide so that out in this world around us, your people would be known by those who are fully committed and fully love you because you have first loved us. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so we're doing this series called I Believe in Miracles. We have two weeks left. We have this week and then next week. And then after that, we'll jump right back in to those last few chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes and kind of finish out our year that way. If you are somebody who doesn't believe in miracles and you've never been to a church service and you decided to come this morning of your own free will, that is a miracle. 
You might say, well, I don't believe in miracles. Statistically, well, you would actually be one. Uh, miracles are things that sometimes aren't naturally explained in the bounds of nature. Sometimes they don't seem rational. It's why we call them miracles. Uh, one of the things people love about the Bible is that it has a bunch of miracles in it. One of the things that other people hate about the Bible is it's got a bunch of miracles in it. And miracles always bump up against what our rational minds and how we want to explain certain things because it doesn't always fit. Like in our rational minds, you know, five plus two equals seven. But sometimes like in how Jesus does things, five plus two can equal feeding five thousand people. This is a miracle. And again, they're meant to push up what we think we know so God can lead us into some type of deeper truth. And so when we scratch our heads to try and figure it out, we need to sit back sometimes, just listen to what God is actually saying. Now, God has set up the world to function in a certain way with certain natural laws that are in place. That's why science works. Because, hey, these things work out the same way every time we trust it. It's verifiable. So therefore, our science works out. And God is a God of order. And for God to set aside that order order in some way to bring about some miracle means that God's doing something. And we're supposed to learn from that and understand what that is. And so we're looking at the miracles, not just because they're fun, but really, what is the reason God is doing these things and how does he want us to grow when he does something extraordinary? God's miracles, again, always serve a greater purpose, which number one is for his glory, which leads his people into a greater joy. Today's miracle is no different. Jesus is going to take a few loaves of bread and a couple fish and feed thousands of people with them. And I'm going to briefly in the front show you the miracle, but then we're going to start to talk about it. And there's going to get a little theology today, and I hope I don't lose you in the midst of it, because John likes to write in metaphor a lot, and Jesus will take these metaphors and make them make sense to us. And as we go through this, Jesus is going to actually talk about what we talked about the last couple weeks, where the people cross the Red Sea and he refers to salvation and the manna in the wilderness as refers to this idea of sanctification as God grows us. And Jesus is going to point all of that to himself, which nobody is going to understand, and a lot of words that are metaphorical, and hopefully I don't lose you. I lost some people in first service, but if I lose you, it's you and it's not me. I just want you to know that from the, from the top. All right, open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Uh, you're going to have to indulge me. There's going to be a lot of verses today. Uh, they're going to be maybe a little different because I'm going to read to you out of the NIV and not the ESV. I normally quote from the English Standard Version, but as I was putting this message together, apparently I had the wrong browser open and I put all NIV verses in, and I'm too lazy to go back and fix it, so you get the NIV today. All right, so uh, John chapter 6, verse. If, if you love the NIV, today's your holiday Sunday miracle for you. Okay, uh, John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, there were some teachers, and they would go around and they would heal. And if you could heal, all those teachers would base their ministry on that healing. Jesus could heal and do miracles, but he based his ministry on his preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. So he's different in how he does that. Verse 3, then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Jesus will celebrate three Passovers with his disciples. This is the second one. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, he most likely asked Philip because Philip is from this area, so he knows. But it's supposed to make Philip go, yeah, 
Where are we going to buy food for all these people to eat? That's a lot of food. I don't know where we would even do it. It kind of smacks the idea of God's people as they run up against the Red Sea before God parts it. What are we going to do? Or they get into the wilderness, and it's like, how are we going to eat? Or where is our water going to come from? It's most to say that thing. Where is this going to happen? What is God going to do? Verse 6, he asked us only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy, and you got to love it because Andrew's trying to help with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Exactly, how far will they go? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. 5,000 men would mean that there are women and children on top of this. This could have been fifteen to 20,000 people. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, like we should do before we eat, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So some people get a nice picnic basket to take with them. I'm sure Yogi Bear would be happy. Uh, verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. This is going back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses, at the end of his life, says there's going to be another Moses, a greater meteor that's going to come, and you should listen to that guy. And they're going, oh, this must be the guy. Verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus gets very, very popular, but he gets popular because these people are misunderstanding what he's doing at this point. But they think, hey, we can make this guy into a king. If you're going to have a king, it may as be one that can heal you and give you free bread all the time. Most kings want to raise your taxes. This one gives you free food. How about that guy? Now, Jesus knows they want to make him king by force. That means they want him to go and take on the Roman Empire. That is not why Jesus came, and this is why Jesus will go and he will hide himself at this point because Jesus has a greater purpose in his life and his death and his resurrection. So that's the miracle. Now, what does it mean? Francis Schaeffer used to say that he, if he had an hour to explain the gospel to people, he would take 40, 45 to 15 minutes and talk about the negative, the negative of it, trying to get a person to feel their dilemma, that we really are spiritually dead, that we actually are lost in our sin. And then he would take the last 10 to 15 minutes and he would talk about how God rescued us and what the gospel really is that has rescued us from the place that we are and from our condition. And he says that much of our evangelistic work today is really not clear because we're so anxious to get to the answer without ever realizing the problem. And so what you'll see in the rest of John chapter 6 is that Jesus is going to talk to a bunch of people who don't really understand the problem. They are blind to who he is. They are blind to what he came to do even in their midst. Jesus does this miracle, then he himself will come back and start to explain this miracle in light of all of their history and what he is coming to do and what God's mission is in the world. The people at this point are very short-sighted. They do not see their real need, kind of like our world today. Like today in our world, everyone gets off track because we all have an idea of what we think the answer is to our world's dilemma around us. Let's talk about the gun debate, right? One side says, let's ban them all together. You go to the far fringe of the other side, it's like, everybody should have one. 
come out of the womb, boom, baby, here's a 45, right? It's, it's weird. It, it's weird. You look at people who are ultra conservative in, in Congress, and they believe the answer to all of our problems is more morals. We've got to get people just to be more moral. Uh, you look at people on the far left, and it's like we've got to take money from those people who have too much. We've got to level the playing field. If everything was just fair, then everything would be better. Social activists come along, and they think the answer is getting people to get it right, which is their definition of right, and they say they're not for laws, but they really are for more laws. Uh, educators come along, and they say the answer is education. I had this teacher in college who I wrote a bunch of papers, and I kept getting bad grades, and I'm like, what are you looking for from me? Well, answer the question correctly, and I'm like, what's the, what's the answer? Education. Okay, every paper, I just went, da-da-da, education, and I got A's and B's. It's, it's what they thought the answer was, so okay, I'll, I'll give it to you. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, who is a futurist, actually says that he thinks the time's coming when there'll be nanorobots in our blood systems, and they'll fix all of our problems, and we'll live for a thousand years or forever, and that will then come along, and that will fix our problem, because nobody is afraid to die anymore. Will our problems ever be fixed by any of these things? No, not at all, because we're still missing the thing that we are created for, and that is relationship with the living God. We all run around. We all have an answer for what we think the answer to all the world's problems are. And I will tell you, some of those might even be good things. Let's stop sex trafficking and end poverty, but eventually everything will fail if it is less than or other than Jesus. That's what's going to happen. Today, many Christians come along, and we make the message of Jesus secondary because we don't understand our real problem. Sometimes if you want to know if you're in that group or can kind of drift into that group, think about this. How do you feel about Jesus? Are you kind of bored with him? You don't really hate him, but you're not filled with love and passion for him? You could very easily drift into that group. J.D. Greer once wrote this. The sign that you've encountered the real Jesus is that you are consumed with one of two emotions, fierce hatred or consuming love. Lukewarm feelings just show you haven't encountered the real guy. Now, I know that's a blanket statement, and there are times we hit the doldrums, but really, do you have fierce love for who he is? So what Jesus is going to do here, he's going to try and wake these people up and take this miracle. He's going to speak some really hard words, which are hard words to them. We don't understand them, so you're going to think, why is that so tough? They were, they were, they were to them. You know, and again, it's because they don't understand the real problem. They are so focused on all their quick fixes to solve everything around them that they miss Jesus and the real gospel. They think the answer to their problems is getting Rome out of the country. It's fixing the government. So glad nobody thinks that today. Jesus is going to make it clear that these people, either they both believe and accept all of what he taught, or they should just reject him altogether. Jesus is not the salad bar at the buffet where you go and take a little piece of this and that and leave the things that you, that you don't like. When we do this, we become short-sighted because we don't, again, understand the real problem or recognize the real Jesus. And this is why John 6 is starting like this with a real problem, physical hunger. And when Jesus does this miracle, the crowd gets really excited. And when they get really excited, Jesus then disappears. That's not because he's shy. He's avoiding a disaster because they missed the point again. He didn't come to end world hunger, at least not at first, as important as it is. He came to redeem and restore our hearts and souls back to relationship with God. And so in verses 16 to 21, Jesus will walk on water. Now, I'm not going to talk about that miracle in this series because I talked about it tons of time before. Go to our website. There's probably 10 messages on it. They all sound the same. It all ends with Jesus, so whatever. Uh, verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 22 to 24, the people get up the next day. And they're like, where did Jesus go? One boat left. He's on the other side of the lake. How did he get there? 
miracle. Right? So these people go searching for him because word starts to get out. Hey, this guy's giving away free bread. He just makes it out of the air. It's kind of amazing. Let's go, let's go find him. I, today, he would have a large crowd of people, too. So people come from all these cities, not necessarily because of what he's saying, but it's almost because they hope this free meal is going to continue. So Jesus now is going to speak to three different groups of people. He's going to talk to the crowd, the religious leaders, and his disciples. And again, these are theological, but there's a metaphor that John uses in here that Jesus uses. So I hope I don't lose you as we walk through this. Uh, These are some strong words. Verse 25 of chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, it sounds really nice. Hey, when did you get here? It's really more accusatory. When did you get here? That's, that's what they're asking, right? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, and this is one of his favorite refrains, I am telling you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You are looking for me because you got this free lunch. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And this is where Jesus is going to take the conversation, moving it towards this thing called eternal life. The majority of people in our lives, we will spend our times trying to fill our stomachs, find our comfort, getting all the things we think we want. And Jesus moves these people to a place of trying to understand what eternal life really is. Is So eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, on him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. And those words now point back to the ideas of the Exodus and Deuteronomy and what Moses says. What's the response? Verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? How do we fix the problem? How do I work this out myself? How do I obtain this bread? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And... No, just to believe in the one he has sent. That's it. He will say it three times to the crowd, to the religious leaders, and to his disciples. Salvation is an issue of grace that leads to faith and belief. Today when we hear the word believe, though, we think it's, i got to muster up enough feelings to convince myself this thing is true. That's not what it means. The word believe there is the word for trust. It's the word for trust. We trust him and what he has done. We may not always understand it. We may not understand where he's leading us and all these places in our lives, but we trust him because of what he has done to rescue and save us. There is nothing we could do on our own merit. Jesus comes, Son of God, pleases the Father. By faith in him, we get relationship with the Father. We don't do anything other than to trust him and what he has done. Out of that comes a relationship with God. That's the point, really, of this miracle. Salvation is like bread that is given to us as a gift. We are powerless to restore what was lost, so God himself does the work of restoring our salvation. God is the one who sustains us. God is the one who gives to us. God gives us life. Now, what is interesting through this, and this is where he starts to lose people, is that this bread is a picture of the gospel, metaphorically speaking. Jesus is going to eventually tie that back to the manna in the wilderness, talking about what he truly came to do and what God was trying to lead them towards. Now, in order for bread to do your body any good, you have to break it. I mean, not break it, but when you chew it, you kind of break it up and, and chew it up into pieces. And you've got to trust that it's not going to kill you or you won't eat it, so you, you, you eat it. Jesus would be broken for us so he could feed our starving souls. Uh, you will also see that in the Exodus, there was, they didn't have water. And so God brings them water out of a rock. In order for water to do you any good, it must be poured out, like into your mouth. Jesus' blood we poured out so that, we, so that we could live in that new life. He would become that water of life to us. The meal that our starving souls need and look for be provided entirely by God himself. Our part is to take and eat, come and drink, look and live. 
And what Jesus does in these few verses is he will distinguish the one true gospel from every other false gospel ever given. And what do the people do when Jesus talked about this? They want to debate about it. Okay, Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you, that we will trust you in this? What will you do? It's right, okay, great, trust you, believe what you're saying. Okay, then you've got to do something for me. You ever meet people like that? Like, oh, if God would just show up and do this, well, then I'd believe. I will tell you, one miracle does not a disciple make, all right? Jesus just fed them with a small sack lunch from a little boy, walked on water, calms a storm, and they want proof that he has supernatural ability? Okay. I mean, it's like, I just fed 20,000 people yesterday. I walked across a seven-mile lake. Is that not a miracle? No, because they have a specific miracle in mind. And what you find out, I think that God really does show up in everybody's life. He really does. He demonstrates himself that people want their own private miracle on their own terms. They want God the way they want God, not how God is, but how they want him to be. We set ourselves up in the place where we make God bow to our whims. We make ourselves God and make God bow down to us. Jesus does demonstrate himself. They just don't see it. So what do they want? Verse 31, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what do they want? Apparently more bread, right? <laughs> they want more bread. Jesus, you had a good day making bread. Uh, how about you make some more? They want to make it into like the, the Swedish chef from the Muppets. Borsh, 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 make some bread. You know, like that guy, right? You provide me free food forever, and I'll believe. And part of this is they're looking back to what Moses did, right? Moses led them out, did all these things. People are like that, though, today. God, if you just have me win the lottery, I'll believe in you. God, if you just give me a hot dude or a hot chick, I'll believe in you. God, if you give me a job that pays six figures so I can eat Oreos all day, I'll believe in you. We all have these things. And God says, I'm not going to play your games. That's not what I'm doing. Every miracle that God does is always pointing to what he is doing in salvation in Jesus. They are comparing Jesus to Moses. If you are really good, if you want us to really trust you, you'd be more like Moses. What did Moses say? Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, there is a greater mediator coming. And then Moses says, listen to him. No, because they have their own little miracle that they want. When Jesus does something amazing, people don't realize that they're not thankful. They become greedy and demand more of him. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He's making this distinction. Jesus says, Moses didn't give you the manna in the wilderness. God did. Moses didn't part the Red Sea. God did. Moses didn't give you water from a rock. God gave you water from a rock. God only worked through Moses and many times in spite of Moses. Don't give credit to man when credit goes to God. Verse 33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Water, bread, Jesus' body and blood. There are two words here that characterize what the true and real gospel is. And the first one is Jesus or or God. The true gospel's primary focus in the end of what it brings is reconciliation with God. Jesus' ministry was not primarily about the ending world hunger or prosperity for all because our problem runs deeper than that. And so our problems are not going to be fixed by food in our stomachs or clothes on our back or education or brains or justice in our governments. In the 19th century, there's this movement in Britain called the British Socialist Movement. They thought that, that with the spread of education and culture that, and progress in the world, that all of our problems would be solved. There's a leader of this movement. Her name was Beatrice Webb. And in 1890, she wrote these words. I stake everything on the essential goodness of human nature. 
Fast forward 35 years, the end of World War I, she references this statement, and this is what she says after that. I realize how permanent the evil and instincts and impulses are in us that mere social machinery will never change. David Cecil, after the Holocaust of World War II, writes these words, The philosophy of progress had led us to believe that the savage and primitive was behind us, but it turns out that it was within us. See, if you want to understand and see the true good news of the gospel, the primary focus of what it will bring about is restoration to God himself, us to God or God to us. The the gospel's primary aim is that reconciliation. The center of its hope is Jesus. The focus of its inspections is God. John Piper says this, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. Oh, where are you going when you die? You're going to heaven, right? The, The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Jesus doesn't come and give the bread of life. He is the bread of life. Piper goes on and says this. Indeed, there are 10,000 gifts that flow from the love of God, but none of these gifts will lead to final joy if they, not, if they have not first led to God himself. That's the point. We want to alleviate suffering, but the most significant suffering in the world is this eternal suffering, that our souls are starving. They're separated from God. So yes, we do want to put bread in people's stomachs, but more importantly, we want to point them to the bread that is given from heaven, which takes us to the second thing, which is grace. Grace. The true gospel centers on what God has done for us, not what we should do for him. D.A. Carson points out that three-quarters of the gospel accounts are really about one week of Jesus' life. He says, he says essentially, the gospels are stories of Jesus' death with a preface. <laughs> That's what he says. Our lives change because of the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus' death and resurrection for us. That's the gospel. It's all, what our lives change in response to what God has done for us. Change comes because we have been reconciled to God, not in order to be reconciled to God. And there are a lot of people today who will talk about the gospel, and they'll use a lot of Christian words. They'll say things like, oh, we've got to live out the new realities of the kingdom. We've got to reform our lives on Christian principles. We've got to pursue justice for all people. We've got to be holy. And yeah, maybe all those things come as a result, but that's not the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is simply what Jesus did to rescue and save us. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. Believing in the gospel should lead to greater acts of good and social transformation more than any other factor. The, the slave trade was brought to an end in Europe by really one, one thing, and that was evangelical Christians like William Wilberforce and John Wesley got involved to end it. Until very recently, every hospital in sub-Saharan Africa was built by Christian missionaries. Every single one. And if you are into bringing hope and transformation into the world, every Christian who has ever truly, I think, understood the gospel works towards that aim. But when the Apostle Paul talked about the gospel, he says of matters of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, is Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Okay, that's the gospel. The true gospel centers on what God has done for us, not what we should do for him. And only by that focus of not having to realize, oh, I got to work my salvation off. No, only by the focus of what Jesus did do we begin to understand the miracle that God's grace is. When Jesus comes and speaks of himself as this bread that restores us, that God sent from heaven to rescue us. Now, go to verse 47 of chapter 6. And what Jesus does here is Jesus now turns his focus and he'll start talking to the religious leaders, those who have memorized all of the scriptures. John 6, verse 47 to 51, Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone, how do you think you translate anyone? Anyone, okay, 
anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus says this to people who have this mindset of this is how God has to work in the world. This is what God has to do. We understand all the scriptures and it interprets exactly the way we think that they have to. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Who is this guy? Who does this guy think that he is to tell us these things? In preaching and public speaking classes, they will tell you, you must be clear. And I think it's funny because a lot of times Jesus wasn't always clear. We will still argue 2,000 years later about a lot of the things that he says. And when they start arguing about this, Jesus doesn't step in and go, oh, let me clarify this for you. He doesn't do that because they're so bound up in the things that they thought of how they have interpreted what this has to mean that Jesus is trying to shake them out of that. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, that cleared it up, right? What? Why don't it, right? Rather than saying, I meant this, he lets them sit there and wrestle through it and deal with it. What is this guy even saying? Drink my blood. Drink my blood. You know, one peanut butter sandwich. How at this point, right, is anybody with all this confusion going to come to faith in Christ here? You know how? Grace and faith. God's calling, God's drawing, God wooing, God bringing his people in because of what he does. That's how. Jesus, right after this, will turn to his students, his disciples, go to verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And I love how they state the obvious, right? That's just who they were. This concept of hard means severe and rough. Not necessarily hard to understand, but hard to trust. Hard to believe. Who can accept it? Literally, who's going to listen to this? Go to verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples, the larger crowd, not the twelve, turned back and no longer followed him. And yes, that's 666, just just get over it. But this still happens all the time, right? Because of how we do Christianity in the world. People say, oh, I want to be a Christian. Well, what's a Christian? Well, God gives me everything I want. i got all these problems and needs, and God fixes those, and you know, th- this is what it is. And then you're just like, no. No, you know what a Christian is? It's someone who has trusted Jesus. You don't work up your salvation. You trust him, and he leads and guides you. And sometimes it's into really hard places, and God is not the God that you have thought up and made up in your own mind. God is the God of the universe who leads you and changes you and brings you into his grace because he is the one who is good. And people go, I don't like that. I don't like that God. Today, there's a, there's a whole rash of people who are walking away from the faith, some Christian leaders. And if you read what they write, they walk away because this is how God was supposed to do things in the world, and he didn't do what I thought he was going to do or the way I wanted him to do it, and I'm done. Really? Really? That's what you're going to do? So what has just happened? We have set ourselves up to judge who God is. We have put ourselves in the place of God rather than trust him. And Jesus knows this is actually going to happen. Now, you, we're, we're removed, you know, a couple thousand years later, we look back, we understand after Jesus' death and resurrection all that he is talking about, right? We understand his body and his blood, that the eating of him and this was metaphorical. We, we know that when Jesus was crucified, his body would be broken like bread and his blood poured out like water. By believing in him, we metaphorically eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's part of what the metaphorical remember is in communion that we do every week, right? We know what that means. We get that now. But at that point, they didn't. And Jesus is trying to change them to understand all the depth of what God is doing through all of those Old Testament miracles. Jesus will then look at the 12 disciples after all these people start to leave. And he says to Peter, do you guys want to leave too? And in John 6, 68 and 69, this is what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We have come to trust you. That's what he says. We may not understand all these words about bread and drink blood and all these things, but you know what? We trust you. And where you lead, I will follow. That's how I'm going to live my life, believing in what you have done for me, trusting the things that you have said. And this is the whole thing of the Gospel of John and all these metaphors and what the manna in the wilderness, that the beauty and truth of God comes down from heaven, just like the manna in the Old Testament, bread that God provided. It is not figured out from below. You don't, you don't smoke peyote or drop some acid and go on a vision quest and find God. It's that God comes and God reveals himself. And how has God revealed himself? as the one who would rescue us from all the places we've run away from him, from all the sin in our lives that have separated us from him and us from one another, God reveals himself as the one who would come and take care of that in himself and what Jesus did to rescue us. The constant theme and all of these that we have looked at through all of this is this bread and salvation and walking across the Red Sea. It foreshadows everything that would point to what Jesus did in the gospel to rescue us. And I think the question must come down to, do we, do we believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Do we trust that he is the one who has the words of eternal life? And if so, there's nowhere else we could ever go. And when hard things come into our lives, we don't understand up from down, forward from back, and where God is taking us, and your soul feels like it's in turmoil. In those times, we even say, you know, I don't know all the answers, but I know you. And you are the Holy One of God. You are God. You died for me. You rose again. I'm sticking with you. I trust you. He is the bread of life. The whole point is, is that we were not created to be a people who go and find something. We are people who are created to be in relationship with someone. Our soul craves relationship with God. It's what we really hunger for. John Piper, when he talks about this world, he says, this empty world is all husks and ashes. Husks and ashes. That's what it is. He is the bread our souls crave to know God, that he loves us with this caring love of a father. And a lot of people have a hard time trusting Jesus because they never recognize that we were made truly for him. And we keep trying to fill our lives with all these husks and ashes, all this bread that leaves us hungry a couple hours later. And yet Jesus comes and says, I'm going to restore your souls. Everything that we have pointed towards, all the history of this Jewish people is coming to fruition in me. I am the bread that came down from heaven to rescue you and save you because you are starving and dead and I'm going to bring you back to life because of my death and resurrection. The only way we get to be restored to God is by God himself having his body broken like bread and his blood poured out for us like water. Guys, we don't need quick fixes. There's only one fix, and that's Jesus himself. I mean, too often today, people will preach about Jesus, and they will say, you know, Jesus is the square peg for the round hole in your life, and you've been trying to fill that, that round hole with the round, with a round peg of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, but it never works. What you need is the square peg of Jesus. Like, you ever heard something like that? That's, that's so wrong. Jesus is not a product. He's not a square peg to fit your square hole. He is your entire life. He's not your co-pilot. He is the one that rescues and saves us and draws into relationship with us because of what he has done. We become a people who become undone and remade by his grace and his goodness and his life given to us. The gospel is Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything that comes out of that is the implications of what the gospel brings. And so we must be a people who understand the core of what that means, that our God rescued us because we were a starving and broken people. 
And this is why I bring you to communion every week. Where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Blood. Broken bread. As a reminder of what Jesus did when he comes to fruition of all that he has promised us. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you if you guys need prayer. Maybe you're in a place today where you thought the gospel was somehow the good news that God allows you to work it off and do it all on your own. Well, that's not the gospel, and they would love to pray with you about that. You know, Maybe you're someone who's really struggling through some stuff, and you, and you want to be someone who says, I'm trusting the Holy One of God who has revealed himself to me and, and been the bread of life to me, but you're still having a hard time. You want someone to talk with you through that. They would love to pray with you through that. I mean, as God's people, we're meant to remind one another Again, daily, who Jesus is, to trust in his strength, that that we walk with him, even in the places that are hard and we don't understand, because we have been and are a people who will starve without him as the true bread who has come to rescue us. There's offering boxes next to every door we give because giving is part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's always a response to what God has done. Uh, There's some snacks outside. Grab something to eat. Take some sermon notes. And maybe begin to ask some people around you those questions this week. You know, what if you had to define the gospel, what would you say it actually is? What would you say it looks like? And if you can understand that the gospel is Jesus' death and resurrection for us, then what are the implications of what that then means for our lives? That there is nothing we can do to merit our salvation in relationship with God. There's nothing we could do except trust, believe in the one he has sent. And then begin to live out in that grace, grace that we have first been provided. Being a people who honor him in all things because he is our great rescuer. And if you look at all those crazy stories over the last couple of weeks, all that God did, bringing him out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the wilderness, Jesus says, it all points to me here now. And if we are a people who trust him, then we trust him in all things. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who walk with our hope fully in you. That we would understand that you are the one who has the words of eternal life. And that you have spoken over us those words of hope and healing and grace and restoration. Father, so often we become a people who get our eyes off of what the real gospel really is and we call all kinds of things the gospel that aren't the gospel. All kinds of things that aren't the announcement of the good news. And I ask this morning that we would understand the greatest proclamation of the best news that we have ever received. That you as our God have come to rescue us and save us that you sent your son to pay for all that separated us from you and ultimately us from one another, that he rose to life and leads us into new and sustaining true life, and that by our understanding of your act for us, our lives would begin to change. We would live out in ways in this world that make a difference and bring a difference but it always goes back to the place where it starts because of what you have first done for us. So teach us to love others because you have first loved us and teach us to offer hope to those around us because you have restored hope to us by your defining act of our liberation. Have us be a people who live out the good news of the gospel in all that we do. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.